Hi everyone, this is the Room Now Podcast. It's April 21, 2023. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This week on the podcast, we've got a lot of stuff on crystal-related arthritis, which I find surprising. A little bit about men with lupus and the importance of neutrophils in making a septic joint diagnosis. So the first study I want to talk about uh, comes from it's a Japanese study from the Journal of Atherosclerosis and Thrombosis. It's a community uh, risk for cardiovascular event study. In this particular study, they looked at uh, 3,000 plus patients with gout, compared that to 10,000 people who did not have gout. And they wanted to see what the linkage is between risk factors for gout and whether that was different between men and women. So amongst the 3188 people with gout, there was 733 males and 355 females. So fairly good balance there, as you might expect more males than females with gout. And it turns out that the risk of developing gout was significantly augmented by the presence of uh, of of uh, alcohol use and hypertension. Um, so uh, hypertension raised at about 41%. Alcohol, uh, depending on how you define things, between uh, 23 and 41% increase. Interestingly, those risk factors for men were not operative in women. Uh, current uh, alcohol use, not really important. Um, but And hypertension, less so. Smoking, interestingly to me, was an important risk factor for the development of gout uh, with a 66% increase uh, in women in the study. I found this kind of interesting. So, and I think we could probably surmise that men with gout and women with gout are going to be different. And maybe it's important to know the gender difference here. Um, a few other studies about gout. One interesting study looked at serial evaluations. I think it was 81 patients. They had good long-term data on 71 patients, and they did clinical assessments. These were gout patients who were followed on urate-lowering therapy, and they did serial uh, assessments of their disease and also ultrasound. In this 12-month study, uh, at least 42% of these 71 gout patients had one or more gout flares with a median of two gout flares in that one-year time frame. It turns out that if you looked at the ultrasound, um, a flare of gout was going to be more prevalent in those who had uh, MSU deposits on ultrasound uh, and those who had a higher Doppler power, power Doppler signal. So if at baseline you did an ultrasound and you found... Um, either the uh, crystals or Doppler findings, you were somewhere around 20 to 30% more likely to have, have flares going forward. You know, I've been trained in ultrasound. I have an ultrasound machine in my clinic. Just don't use it. You know, I maybe we have to have a discussion about what it takes to stop, get the machine, you know, goop them up with the gel, um, clean them off, um, find what it is that you're going to find and move on. Um, again, I think if it's a part of an assessment visit and or a um, the ultrasound is a billable service part of the visit, I find it hard to incorporate that into my daily practice. But this data would say that a baseline assessment 
by ultrasound would tell you the people who are more likely. It makes sense. If you've got a total body urate load as evident by ultrasound, you're more likely to flare as you're on uh, urate-lowering therapy. So the most effective drug that is in our arsenal to treat gout that almost nobody uses is what? Peglodocase. It's gigantically affected. I, I don't think that everyone needs to be on it, but clearly patients with refractory, recurrent, tophaceous gout not getting better with usual urate-lowering therapy. Peglodocase is a tremendous tool, but seldom gets used. And there are a lot of reasons. People are afraid of, you know, infusion reactions, cardiovascular events. And one thing that has come up is whether or not they may have, uh, you know, the renal, the renal disease that they have might in fact get worse. This particular study that we put up this week was a sub-analysis of the patients in the MIRROR trial. As you know, that's the most recent trial of methotrexate background use in patients receiving peglodocase, increasing the efficacy, decreasing the um, uh, side effects and, and adverse events. But in this study, patients with, you know, stage one, two, three, I think, and even four um, CKD had no change in really their GFRs pre-peglodocase and post-peglodocase. So if that's a reason you're not using peglodocase, this study would tell you, don't worry about it. Go ahead and do it. Don't worry. Be happy. Give the peglodocase. Um, a nice study from the Brigham looks at CPPD, a condition we often talk about. And, you know, most of us have knowledge of CPPD, I must say, based on what we've read and what we've been taught, because we don't have a plethora of patients. Well, over a five-year period at the Brigham, they compiled 47 patients. What was the profile? Equal numbers of women and men. Average age in this cohort, 72 years. Uh, and when you look at what was the pattern of disease or type of CPPD that was present, uh, calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, uh, two-thirds had, had at least one episode of acute CPPD arthritis. 40% had the chronic form of inflammatory arthritis that looks a little bit like RA, does it not? And 60% had evidence of osteoarthritis in combination with their CPP diagnosis. So all of those forms do exist. And I, as I would guess, without going into the actual joints and whatnot, it's going to be mostly in hands and mostly in knees. It could be in other places as well. They did compare some of the um, findings, clinical features, uh, to a cohort of gout patients and found that um, while gout patients had higher rapid three levels, I think the average there was 12 versus the CPPD patients of eight, both of them were elevated with numbers of, in rapid three numbers that are indicative of active disease. Um, but there was a much more significant unmet need as far as um, treatment uh, availability and the use of treatments in the CPPD population because, in fact, other than non-steroidals, pain meds, and steroids, what do you have to treat those patients? If you're going to tell me about biologics and DMARDs, there's not a lot of data to support that. So what percentage of patients with uh, lupus are men? A very large NIH-sponsored uh, survey tool that is actually linked to EMR data um, identified from 
a supposed million patients in this nationwide survey, um, they identified over 1,400 SLE patients. What do you think is the number uh, that actually had lupus that were men? Turns out that it was 9% were men. It was roughly, I think, 126 or 28 patients overall. When they compared men and women, um, men had a higher risk of myocardial infarction. And when it looked at, you know, assessing health, men had a higher problem with medical forms and online things than did women. Sounds like men were kind of like Neanderthals, aren't we, when it comes to this stuff? And then if you feign, like, I can't do this, then usually it's a woman that comes to your rescue and helps you out and fills out the form. Women with lupus were more likely to have fatigue, had higher educational levels, and they almost were statistically significant on higher numbers of lupus nephritis and also antiphospholipid syndrome. When you, they looked at their uh, access to health care and barriers to health care, they were really equal between the sexes. So this was a study that I think defined the number of men, uh, some of the unique uh, gender-specific uh, differences between men and women. So immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, therapy we've talked about in the past. I like this report from MedPage today this week. It looked at what happens when uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapies are used in patients with pre-existing RA and how do they fare. Um, this is a Lancet rheumatology paper. It was a, a retrospective analysis, um, and it looked at a, a cohort of patients. Uh, we don't have the numbers here that um, received immune checkpoint inhibitors. Most of it was a uh, uh, PD-1 inhibitors. Most of the cancers were lung cancer was number one. I think melanoma was number two. Uh, and when they looked at some of the outcomes, um, they compared an RA cohort. Um, that received these therapies to a non-RA cohort. And both of them had equal mortality rates. It was a little bit higher in RA, but it was not significant. 69% mortality in RA, 63% in the non-RA population. This was not significant. Um, turns out that, again, almost significant, but not quite. All immune-related adverse events, IRAEs, were a higher in RA than non-RA, 61% versus 49%, but not quite significant. But was significant, what was significant was uh, inflammatory arthritis flares. Far more likely in the RA population, 48%. This is the RA population receiving immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy uh, versus only 7% in the non-RA population, highly significant. But interestingly, while RA patients got more of the arthritis, you kind of expect that, would you not? They actually had less of the very common IRAEs that we know that occur. And that would include uh, rash and dermatitis and endocrinopathy, colitis, enteritis, and hepatitis. They were actually much less common in RA patients than in non-RA patients. So, and it was significant. So, there is, so yes, your RA patients can receive um, immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy without uh, a major change in outcomes. You just got to watch for more RA flares and manage it, and I think you can do that. I mean, the only rule here is you don't use a, a CTLA-4-related drug, meaning abatacept. All other therapies are on the table. Steroids, methotrexate, TNF inhibitors, biologics, etc. Uh, I think last week we talked about some income issues in... Uh, or the week before, income issues in rheumatology, pediatric rheumatology, um, number three and number 20, and the lowest uh, number of 
of, of salaries. Um, another report not encouraging showed that in 2023, um, uh, salaries did drop for six specialties. Number six on the list was rheumatology at a 3% decrease compared to 2022 salaries. The biggest drop in this of the six specialties was that of ophthalmology at a minus 7%, followed by emergency medicine minus 6, PM&R, uh, and nephrology at minus 5, allergy 2. Rheumatology, minus 3%, not so bad, but really, we're at, again, we're in the bottom six here. So clearly, you must love being a rheumatologist because they're not rewarding you as well as they should be. And this is something we need to fight for, especially if you're a woman. You know, it is April, and that is Women in Rheumatology Month. We've been covering a lot of the um, uh, gender-related inequities in a lot of things, including in salary. So I found a nice study on interchangeability between rituximab, the originator drug, and its biosimilar, um, Truxema, which is, I think, also called CTP10, um, a study of 128 RA patients, uh, half of half receiving the biosimilar or rituximab. And, and then of the patients who receive rituximab later on, they uh, 40% of them switched to CTP10. And it turns out the exact same number of infusion reactions, infections, hypogammaglobulinemia. This was a study designed to meet the regulatory definition of interchangeability. Interchangeability doesn't necessarily mean that one is equal to the other, as you know. That's really the benchmark um, for getting a biosimilar on the market, having the exact same clinical efficacy and safety outcomes. Interchangeability is a, another th um, regulatory definition with a, a certain set, set of designs that need to occur so that if you meet that definition, then um, the biosimilar can be um, uh, used in place of the originator compound without the physician giving consent. And that's sort of important. The, the, good, the interesting thing is that uh, only a minority of currently available biosimilars in the United States have met this interchangeability definition. So again, it is April Women in Rheumatology Month. We looked at um, gender differences when it came to um, steroid use by the prescribers and steroid use by the patients. Turns out no real, um, um, oh, actually there was a difference uh, in patients who are likely to get steroids were more likely to be male than female. They were also more likely to have been on a lot of prior therapies, also been on opioids and have comorbidities and also more infections, right? But when you look at the prescribers, I found this interesting, that when they looked at the, the, the uh, males and female uh, rheumatologists that met the definition of being high prescribers of steroids, they, they found out that um, women were less likely to be high steroid prescribers. Um, and the profile of not being a high steroid prescriber was someone who was a woman in private practice, in private practice for more than 10 years, um, also taking care of a lot of patients. Interesting, don't you think? Regulatory uh, news this week, the uh, European Commission, um, uh, the EMA, has approved uh, Patacitinib uh, or Rinvoke for the treatment of moderate to severe active Crohn's disease. This is a new development. Um, and uh, as you know, it joins 
uh, other JAK inhibitors, most of which are being, have been approved for use in, in ulcer colitis, not in Crohn's. So this is sort of unique. And Lily had some news with a complete response letter, which, as you know, is not a denial, but is a pause from the FDA saying, hey, there's a problem. In this case, the problem with Lily's product, the IL-23 inhibitor, Mirakizumab, has to do with the manufacturing process for um, uh, its drug, Mirakizumab. And that is related to their uh, uh, biologic license application, the BLA, uh, for use of Mirakizumab and ulcerative colitis. So they have to fix their manufacturing issues, and then they'll be off to the races again in the near future. Uh, a retrospective study of 147 patients with um, suspected um, joint infection, these patients either had a hip replacement or a knee replacement, and their complaints were both acute or chronic. Ultimately, 39 patients were proven to have prosthetic joint infections. And the best predictive variable in that were high numbers of neutrophils. Um, having uh, higher neutrophil counts, I mean, high white counts are important, but it's the neutrophil percentage in that count that makes the most amount of sense. Now, I don't know about these numbers. In THA, a, a PMN count of greater than 3,600, and in the knee replacement greater than 2,000 uh, per microliter, um, had a sensitivity of over 97%, specificity of almost 94%. But this is uh, akin to literature I looked at a long, long time ago about you know, the, where you should be suspecting septic arthritis when you look at synovial fluid. And obviously, in synovial fluid, the higher the white count, the higher the risk of septic arthritis. But the thing that you may not pay attention to is it's the percentage of neutrophils in that white count. So obviously, having a high white count above 30,000 would make me uh, worry a lot. But if it's, you know, a PMN count or percentage greater than 85% or certainly greater than 90%, that strongly speaks to uh, an infectious etiology, more so than inflammatory or crystal or trauma, etc. So anyway, this research related to uh, joint replacements and identifying prosthetic joint infections, again, underscores the importance of identifying the predominance of neutrophils. Um, lastly, we have um, uh, a, a compilation paper from Laura Coates and Alexis Agdi. Uh, meta-analysis or systemic uh, review, systematic review of 31 publications in psoriatic arthritis showing that uh, overall women have higher rates of peripheral arthritis, inflammatory arthritis, and by contrast, men more likely to have axial disease. That's not surprising. The women part may be surprising to you, but interestingly, men not only had more axial disease, men were also more likely to have uh, active skin disease as measured by um, POSSE and uh, body surface area scores. So uh, there were other interesting factors here, including that both men and women had the same um, quality of life measure, the DLQI, um, but women were more likely to have more pain and fatigue. And lastly, uh, women also had lower uh, responses to usual therapies used with um, lower ACR uh, response rates, etc. So this is something that I think is, uh, is, we feature this in our therapeutic update. This month you should go on and look at the two videos that Alexis Agdi did, one on uh, psoriatic arthritis, the other on 
um, ankylosing spondylitis, spondyloarthritis, showing uh, the surprising data that women um, do, with those two conditions do not fare as well as do their male counterparts. So in, in this month, um, we've got a lot of um, interesting uh, videos on this subject. We also have th- uh, three great blogs this past week. Um, Women Rheumatologists in the Private uh, Sector, uh, a great blog by uh, Priya Reddy of Florida. Uh, Priya is the president of the, um, the Florida Rheumatology uh, Society. Um, and then uh, Nicola Dalbeth from the, uh, New Zealand and the University of Auckland has a really cool article on gender equity in academic rheumatology. And then I also want to point out a strong article on the power of collaboration by Dr. Janus Yazdani from uh, UCSF, where she talks about how important collaboration has been to her and her career development. And, um, and I, I like what she sort of sums it up as. She says that, you know, collaboration happens when you're generous, open-minded, you're optimistic, you join by showing up either online or in conferences, you ask, for help, you ask to join, help contribute, and when all that's done, especially in the context of diversity, you get meaningful collaboration with lasting impact. Uh, I really like this blog, and she closes with a great quote from Ken Blanchard, um, who's, who has used the, and I've heard this many times, none of us is as smart as all of us, meaning together we go far, and that's actually my favorite quote of the week. Um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's an old African proverb, the title of this week's blog. Next week, be sure to sign on and go to our last Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, we're doing a town hall on women in rheumatology where we're going to have four leaders um, discuss you know, what should be our agenda. What do we need to do as a society and as individuals at the institutional and societal level to move the needle forward on a lot of the gender inequity issues that have been brought up in this past month? I'll be moderating the session. I'm going to be throwing hand hand grenades at the panel and see how they respond. I think it's going to be a really lively discussion. I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll ask lots of questions. We'll see you next week.